We're going to be in, everybody got your Bibles? Or some version that you can, uh, that you can get to uh, your Bible, share with somebody if you don't. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to do the whole chapter. Um, so we're going to go through the whole chapter. I'm going to read uh, portions of it to where uh, we're not going to stop and just dissect every verse. But there's a, there's a portion of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that I really want to focus on. Um, and uh, so if you go ahead and go there, we will, uh, we'll, get, we'll get started. I'm going to... I'm going to pray before we get started. I want you to really, uh, any time that you are about to, um, anytime that you're about to open the Word, anytime that you're, uh, that you're about to engage in the reading uh, of this Word, I want to just encourage you for that never to be uh, a casual thing, for it never to be something that you enter into uh, flippantly uh, where you somehow believe, I'm, going to, I'm just going to open this, uh, I'm going to open this book and by an act of magic, there's going to be, you know, transformation uh, in my life. It's, it is important for us to realize that none of this will make sense uh, absent the Holy Spirit. Um, and so every single time you open your Bible, I mean, just, just make it a practice to go, okay, I know that in here is truth, but I know that truth can't just be uh, by nature just understood in my mind, I have to have the help of the Holy Spirit. So every time you open your Bible and you're about to read, just go, okay, Holy Spirit, I want to know truth. Reveal to me truth. And what you do is you, you begin then a dialogue with the Holy Spirit to where now when you're reading this book, he's reading it with you. And he's pulling out the truth that you need to hear, that somebody else might need to hear that you would share. Uh, and it's not casual. It becomes, and then every time you read your word, it, the possibility is for uh, is for transformation. So uh, just, just as a practice, anytime, whether you're in a, a class like this, whether you're at school and you just you pull out your word, or uh, no matter what, just quickly, just go, Holy Spirit, I need you to reveal the truth of what's in this word. So that's what we're going to stop and do, is just ask the Holy Spirit to bring us, uh, to bring us truth. Because when He does, uh, transformation is possible. If the Holy Spirit shows up and brings life to this word, then you could walk out of here an hour later absolutely different than when you came in. Is that exciting? That's exciting to me, to know that my weakness can become strength, uh, to know that uh, sin can be noticed and vanquished in my life, to know that healing can occur if truth uh, will happen. And so it's exciting to open the Word and go, okay, Holy Spirit, you speak. So let's just do that. And I just, I'm going to pray over you, but I just would ask that you would pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to you. God, we thank you um, just for this unbelievable opportunity that we have to gather as your church, to gather as people who know you, and don't just know you uh, intellectually, but know you relationally. Know you to where we can say these words, Abba, Father. Know you in such a way that you look at us and you call us your sons and daughters. And your desire in this room uh, and, and has been from the beginning of time is to reveal yourself to the ones you love. And you, we know that you love us. And so we know your desire this morning is to reveal yourself to us. But we know we can't do it without your help. We know we cannot just attain truth on our own, but we need your help. So Holy Spirit, we ask for you to bring us the truth which is in the heart of our Father God. We ask for you to speak to the depths of our heart that we may not even, uh, we may not even be able to explain, but that you know deeply and intimately. So we ask for truth to be made known and we ask for transformation to occur in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so 1 Corinthians 
uh, chapter 2. Um, what I really want to focus on is uh, really the importance of spiritual discernment. So uh, I, I have a hard time piecing out just scriptures, uh, so I'm going to read a little bit just to give us some context. It's, it's really important that you have uh, context as you read the scriptures. So we're going to start in verse 1, um, and then I'm going to kind of sum up a, f- a few verses, and then we're going to really stop and get into uh, a few kind of right in the middle, if that's all right. So uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 1, it says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, this is Paul speaking, and he's writing to the church at Corinth, I did not come with, uh, with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of of God. So in these first five verses, basically what Paul is saying is that I didn't come to you with any kind of uh, real creativity. He said, I, I came that you would know one thing. I preached one thing, and that was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If we look uh, in the book of Acts, when Peter really gives this first uh, evangelical message after the, after the baptism with the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up and he basically lays out a case that this is Jesus, this is the Savior, this is the Messiah, this is the Chosen One, and He was crucified and has risen. And on that day, there were over 3,000 people uh, that were saved. And it was simply because Peter preached uh, very simply the gospel, that this is the Messiah. He has been crucified, but death could not hold him, and he has been risen from the dead. What is wrong with us that resurrection from the dead is not impressive enough? What is, what, is, what is wrong with us that we somehow feel like we have to add to this gospel more than this is the one that was promised from, from eternity past as the Savior of the world to rescue us from our sin. He has come, He has been crucified, and He has been resurrected to give then resurrection life. How is that not sweet and powerful enough for us to preach. And this is what Paul says. This is why I came. I came to preach to you nothing except Christ and Christ crucified. He says, I didn't come with persuasive words. I didn't try to, to come to you with, uh, with eloquence of speech. Paul even kind of admits here he's probably not the greatest uh, order of all time. Now, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he was. Maybe he wasn't. But, but he says, basically, I, I, didn't, I didn't put on any, uh, any fancy outfit. I didn't do any fancy dance to try to impress you. Uh, I just came with the simplicity of the gospel message. It says, this is Christ, and this is Christ crucified, and that is enough. And what, why was that important to him? He says in verse 5, because I didn't want your faith to be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, that's important for us to understand that there's some accountability when we preach the gospel. There's accountability when we dress the gospel up as more than what it is. When we become persuasive to a point that we've convinced a man to follow our words and not be saved by the power of God. I want to tell you, I think it's a, probably a staggering statistic how many people are sitting in church today believing that they're Christians that are not because they've never actually encountered the power of God for salvation. They've just been convinced by a man. And Paul says, it's not worth it. 
I'll drop the act. I'll drop the creativity of words and of speech because I want your salvation to be because you encountered a living and active God who in Christ was crucified and rose, right? Isn't that, isn't that, shouldn't that be so important to us? That our friends aren't saved because we, we made a good speech. They're saved because we simply preached Christ and Christ crucified and the power of God interrupted their lives and they were saved, right? And that's Paul's desire here in these first five verses. And then he says this word, however. So we got to watch out. So he, he makes this uh, explanation in verse one through five and then he says, however, we speak wisdom. So he just said we don't speak wisdom and now he's saying we speak wisdom. So we got to see what he's talking about. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Yet, not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And so he, he kind of says, okay, there's a little bit of a paradox going on here. So I didn't come to you with uh, the fanciness of human words. I didn't come to you with the, with the wisdom of man. However, I did come with wisdom, but not the wisdom of man, not conventional wisdom of the natural man. I came to you with the wisdom of God, which to man is foolishness, right? The Bible tells us that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing right? The wisdom of God. God uses the simple things to confound the wise, right? The, the wisdom of God is not according to the nature of man, but he says, that's the wisdom I came to you with. The simplicity of the gospel that Jesus Christ was crucified and was raised is a simple thing, but makes no sense to our rational mind. Why would God come why would God come? Much less, why would God be clothed with humanity and then punished for it? You think about the scandalousness of that thought. That God, John tells us that God that existed uh, before time even existed. Jesus was present in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God and the Word was with God and all things were created through Him, right? This is the one who has come and put on mortal flesh. You see the foolishness of that. Is that how we would have drawn it up in the wisdom of man? Absolutely not. But the wisdom of God is not according to the wisdom of man. And so Paul says, I came to you with the wisdom of God to preach to you this scandalous gospel that God became man in pursuit of man that we might be ransomed back to the Father. And he says, look, man, if this had been to the conventional wisdom of man, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus, Right? Had this been according to the wisdom of man, Jesus would have never been crucified, but he was because the, the, the wisdom of man could not understand uh, the Messiah as flesh. You read over and over when Jesus makes these claims about where he comes from, right? Jesus says, I came from the Father. And he essentially uh, says, I, I'm God, right? I, I know all things of the Father because I came from the Father. And you, you see the reactions of people, it just doesn't fit in their brain, right? It, it's, not a, it's not a thought that, uh, that makes sense that God would become man. But Paul says, this is the gospel that we must preach, all right? So we good? That's verse, that's verse one through nine. Is everybody okay? 
That's a really fast version of verse uh, 1 through 9, but uh, I wanted to, wanted to piece that together uh, because what Paul does in those first verses is he sets up for us an important paradox. You have to, you have, to have clued into the fact that, that Paul is already setting up uh, a, a paradox for us to understand. So the rest of what he's going to explain in chapter 2 is going to be according to the differentiation between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. And Paul's saying, I'm going to come to you with the wisdom of God. So we've got to understand that there's a difference. And the wisdom of God doesn't fit in the wisdom of man. You okay with that? So that's verse 9. That's verse 1 through 9. Nods if you're okay. All right. There we go. So we go into verse 10. So he's just said, None of the rulers of the age knew, for if they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard. It hasn't even entered into the heart of man what God has done for those who love him. We couldn't, have, we couldn't have fathomed what God is doing. And he says, but, I love this, this is so good, but God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So he's just said, he's just said that Based on human understanding and human wisdom, there is no way that we could have uh, ascended to a point to know the hidden mysteries of God. There is no way in our, in our wiring that we could have searched out the deep things of God and known the depths of his heart. But look what he says. He says, but, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. So we, we got to understand something here. There's only one way. There is only one way in which we know the deep things of God. And what is that way? By the Spirit. It, it, there, there, is no, there is not another option here. He doesn't give an option A, B, and C, but God has revealed them by whichever means you desire, right? But God has revealed them by whatever way that, that you uh, feel comfortable with. He says, no, that God has revealed the deep things of God. He has made them known to us through his spirit. And then watch what it says about the spirit. For the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. So what do, we, what do we know about the Spirit of God? What does the Spirit know about the Father? Everything. The Spirit is absolutely connected with, is associated with, is one with the depth of God. Here's the other portion of this really, really, really good news in this passage is that God has revealed. What does that word mean? Shown, brought to light. Why would God reveal something? Yeah, because absent his revealing, we would not know. Absent his revealing, we would not know. I spent, uh, I spent a year traveling with a, uh, an illusionist, and uh, we would go to college campuses uh, all over the nation, and uh, we, we, would, we would start out by, he would, he would, well, we, I didn't do anything, right? I, uh, there was no, no magic in these hands, right? So uh, we, would, we would go to college campuses, all of us, and he would just do these unbelievable uh, illusions, right? And, and what's the question that everybody asks as soon as it's over? How did he do that, right? 
And then he would stop. He'd spend an hour doing these, these illusions. And by, by the end of it, people are, you know, their minds are blown. Their, their, their jaws are on the floor, right? It's this, it's this really uh, unbelievable presentation. And then he stops and he says, the only way you can answer the question, how did he do that, is if I reveal the truth to you. You cannot, by an act of yourself, come behind the curtain and know how I do all of what I do. The only way that you know the truth of what's happening is if the author of that truth reveals the truth to you, right? And it's the exact same thing here. The only way that we can know the deep things of God is if God himself says, these are the deep things of my heart, and by an act of my spirit, I'm going to reveal them to you. This is good news for you and me. This is good news for us to know that God in his infinite glory might come and say, I want to share with you the depths of my heart. Because you could not make it there on your own, but I'm going to reveal them to you. Does anybody know that God is a pursuer? Isn't this, a, this is a beautiful, beautiful truth about our Father. That he, you, you in no capacity pursued God. He has pursued you. If, if, if the cross of Jesus tells us anything, it is that the pursuit of God and his heart for his people knows absolutely no boundary that he might send his beloved to die on our behalf. That the pursuit of God is ferocious and vicious. That God is, he is absolutely bent on revealing himself to his people to the extent that he would sacrifice, right, his son. Does this make sense to you? Girls in the room, is there a difference when a guy pursues you than when you kind of got to give him all the hints? There's a bit of a difference, right? There's, a, there's, a bit of a, there's something that captures our heart when we're pursued. It's relational. That's what God has done. He says that he is our bridegroom and that we are his bride, that the church, we are his bride, and he has pursued us. He has loved us to the extent that he has pursued us. Pursuit, guys, just a side note, pursuit in dating is scriptural. Quit copping out and making her come after you. Go after her, right? You're wired to do it. God showed us how to do it, right? So he has pursued us. So it, by his spirit, he has revealed to us the deep things of God. Now look at verse, uh, look at verse 11. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. So uh, in, in verse 11, he says, what man knows the things of man except the Spirit of man? So if I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it, I'm going to draw it, I draw it every single time we get together. We've got body, soul, and he says, what, uh, how does a man know a man essentially except by the Spirit, right? He's talking about a little s. This is a, I write in all caps. I do this every time. It's the little s spirit, right? He says, let's read it again. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? So what we've got is he says, look, basically if this is mind, will, and emotions, and this is our, this is our heart, right? This is the deepest parts of us. This is our inner man. Uh, how do we know the things of man, right? By the spirit of man that is in us. The deepest parts of us, we can kind of explain to you why we're thinking and feeling what we're 
thinking and feeling, right? And really, the only one that can do that is you. You do some weird stuff sometimes. And sometimes people go, why did you do that? And have you ever done that? When somebody asks you, well, why did you do that? And your rationale makes complete sense to you, but the person listening is like, what? <laughs> right? Because no one knows the thoughts of man, but the spirit of man that is in him. No one knows what you're doing and why you're doing except for you. You're the only one that really knows that motivation. And then so he turns it around and he says, yes, so this is true. You understand this principle from a human nature. And then he says, uh, even so. So what is, it, what, is he, what is he drawing? He's drawing a comparison. So just as no one knows the thoughts of man but the spirit of man, he says, even so, no one knows the things of God except the, come on, this side of the room, this one like murmured it, but this one was silent, the spirit of God, right? No one knows the things of God but the Spirit of God. He's just said in the previous verse, he's just said that God, by His Spirit, has revealed the deep things of God. And then he adds on to that by saying, and it's only the Spirit of God, it's only the Spirit of God which knows the deep things of God. Is the Spirit important? Oh my goodness. We would not know truth but by the Father revealing Himself through the Spirit. We can't, we can't just get there by our own rationale. Has God ever done something in your life that you go, man, I didn't see that coming? Has God ever done any, something in your life that you don't even understand until five years later, right? That, you, that in the middle of it, you're going, God, what are you doing? I prayed for this, and this is what happened. God, what are you doing? And then three or four or five years later, you look back and go, oh, See, because in that situation, you would have never done what God did. Because your rationale would have painted a completely different picture. But when God enters a picture, his, uh, his thoughts and His ways are not our ways. That's what Isaiah 55 says. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. They're not based on natural man. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, God sends a prophet to anoint the next king of Israel. And they go to the house of Jesse. Right? You remember this story? They go to the house of Jesse to, uh, to anoint the next king of Israel. And he looks at all these, uh, all these sons of Jesse and none of them add up. God says, no, it's not that one. No, it's not that one. No, it's not that one. And Jesse keeps bringing in the oldest, biggest, and strongest. Right? Keeps lining them up. And God says, no, it's not that one. Finally, God says, listen. <laughs> go get the little scraggly one, the young one in the field. That's the one who I've chosen. And he says, you... you observe based on your eyes. You, you would say who is strong and who is chosen based on the way that you look at a man, based on your wisdom, right? Based on your rationale. But God doesn't look at things that way, right? He says God looks deeper. God looks to the heart. God doesn't observe uh, men like we do. He doesn't, his wisdom is not our wisdom. So let's move on. Verse 12. This is where I think that it gets really, really, really exciting. So if you're not already just on the edge of your seat excited, which many of you are, this is where it's going to get exciting. All right. 
So verse 11, we'll just get some momentum. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So the momentum is built. That wisdom is of God. He has revealed this wisdom, these deep things by his spirit. He has revealed them, right? And no one knows them anyway but by his spirit. And it's by his spirit that he has revealed the deep things of God. And then it says in verse 12. So we know that this spirit of God is so absolutely fundamentally important. In verse 12 it says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. There is so much in this verse. I want to stop here. We're going to stop for a while. So so we know, it's already set up, that it's absolutely important for us to have some sort of interaction with who? The Spirit of God, right? That God has revealed things by His Spirit, and the only way that we're going to know truth is by His Spirit. Are you with me? And so then he says, now you have received not the spirit of the world. He says, God, when God saved you, you have not received, he has not left you here. Ezekiel prophesies that I'm going to give you a new spirit, right? I'm going to take the old one from you. I'm going to give you a new spirit and not just give you a new spirit, but then I'm going to put my spirit in you. He promises, what the Bible calls this regeneration. It's a big fancy word that means making things new, right? He has regenerated us, meaning, according to verse 12 here, that God has not given us this spirit again. That God has not wired us to again associate with the world around us based on our own wisdom, based on our own intellect. That God has removed the old and by the miracle of the cross, God has given us a new spirit. And not just a new spirit, but God has given us his spirit. Now think about the magnitude of what this says. We've just understood that it is the Spirit of God which knows the depths of His heart, which knows the thoughts and intentions of God. Anybody ever wanted to access that? Anybody ever wanted to know what God is thinking, what God is doing? Most of the time we think of that as something so distant and far off that we could never connect with. That God is this very foreign object that though, I mean, He is glorious and there is no way we could ever associate with Him. But that's not what the cross tells us. That's not what the gospel says. We live most of our Christian lives with this uh, the very uh, distant relationship with God because we, we kind of believe that there's somehow no way for us to associate with Him. But this passage tells us it's the very opposite. That the very thing that knows the depths of his heart, he has, he has put right in the middle of us. That he has literally placed his spirit in you that you might know the thoughts, heart, and intention of God. You are the opposite of far off. That's why he now looks at you and calls you a son and a daughter. Is that all right with you? That God would call you his son and his daughter and that all of who he is would be freely available to you. Beloved, there is nothing in the heart of God which is not available to you. What good thing might I withhold if my son walked in the room? Think about that. Boy, I have learned, I have learned a vast amount about my father by being a father. 
things I, I just I didn't understand. I would read that God is Abba, Father, things I wouldn't even understand. But what good thing might I withhold from my son if he walked in the room and needed it? Now, it may not be what he thinks he needs, but I would withhold no good thing. That all of me and all that I have is his, is available to him. And what I want to do in him is bring him to a point of maturity where he can handle it. That's my goal as a parent, and that's, that's your father God. That he, he, he has withheld nothing from you. He has given us the fullness of his grace, the fullness of his glory, the fullness of his heart. He has withheld nothing from us by placing his spirit in us because his spirit is the one that knows the deep things of God, which by conventional wisdom of man, we would never know. But God has said, let me, let me by an act of grace in pursuit, let me give it to you freely. You didn't pay you didn't pay a dime for this grace. It was given. He says that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. There is a shift that must occur in most of our hearts. Most of us believe that we are a beggar in the kingdom of heaven. Most of us believe it's the what you can see it. I'll tell you how to find it first. How do you pray? Does your praying mirror a son approaching a good father or does your praying more closely mirror a man begging on a street corner? And most of us, I've seen this, God is working this in my heart, that most of us associate with our father, most of us associate as a distant beggar in the kingdom. That we're, on the, that, we're, that we're out and we're not really understood, not really noticed, and that to really get anything from God, we must beg and beg and beg and plead, and then maybe God might notice us. That's not the truth. Your prayer life will drastically change when, when the shift occurs that you're not a beggar, you're a son. You're not an orphan, you're a daughter. And it says that God has freely given us. Freely given us. Look, if he'd have waited for us to earn it, we'd still be toiling. It means working. We'd still be grappling for it. But it was important enough for, for us to be his sons and daughters that God sent his son to die that we might know all things of his heart, that we might associate with him as sons and daughters. I want to show you this in Jesus' life because I think it's so powerful to really see this at play. Jesus understood this. Go to John chapter 5. This is one of my favorite passages. It's a, it's, a, it's a verse in the scriptures that absolutely changed my life, changed the way I did ministry, changed the way I did marriage, changed the way uh, I just totally changed my life. In John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus tells us that I can do nothing of myself. That's a, that's a strange thing for, for the Son of God to say, right? He says, I can do nothing of myself. He says, I only do what I see my Father do. Now, many of you have heard me teach this uh, a lot. It's fundamental in the way that we live on the earth. Jesus gave us this picture of how we are to live on the earth. Jesus was not an anomaly. You must understand that. Jesus was the picture of what we should look like on the earth, a man fully given to the Holy Spirit in his life. That's what Jesus gave us. 
was that picture. That's why he said, you must be perfect as I'm perfect. Be holy as I am holy. Uh, you are going to do greater things than I'm going to do. I've called you to life like myself, right? This is what Jesus gave us. He gave us the authority that he had on the earth. Why? Because our expectation is to live as he lived on the earth. Don't lower the bar. Jesus was not an anomaly. He was, he was a man uh, fully given to the Holy Spirit and obedience to the Father. And this is what Jesus says about everything that he does. I only do what I see my Father do. Now watch what happens in verse 20. We go, yeah, well, that's great. Well, Jesus, of course, Jesus can see what the Father's doing. Of course, he's Jesus, right? He's the Son of God. Of course, he knows what the Father is doing. He has that special little access point, right? When he walks up to the code of the Father's heart, he has that little special code that, you know, he types in, and it's the Jesus code, and he gets into the Father's heart, right? Anybody? That's a joke. There's some smiles, but most of you are dead. You guys all right? But that's, that's, that's how we think of things, right? That's how Jesus healed the blind. That's how he picked the dead up from the grave. That's how he healed the sick. It's because he's Jesus. That's not true. And that is causing an enormous amount of mediocrity in our lives because we say, well, that was Jesus. No, that's you. And he says, I only do it because I see my father doing it. But look at verse 20. Somebody read verse 20 out loud. Wow. I only do what I see my Father do. Yeah, Jesus, well, it's you. No, it's because the Father loves the Son. It's because the Father loves the Son. Why was Jesus so confident to enter into the throne room of his father? Because the father loves the son. Why was Jesus shown all that? Why was this all available to him? Because the father loves the son. So what good thing might he withhold, right? You understand this? You see this, it's the same principle. So Jesus knows this, that the father loves me. I'm gonna ask you that question. Do you know that? Oh, but do you really know that? Or is it just something you've sang since you were a child? Do you know the depth of what that means? That God loves you. And if you know what that means, if really that impacts your heart, that you know that beyond all that I say, beyond all that I think, beyond all that I do, beyond all of my behavior, that ultimately this fact cannot be changed, that God loves me. And because he loves me, he has freely given me all of himself. Why does he love you? Not because you behaved well. This is where the cross is so important. Because the reason that the wrath of God was turned from you is because it was poured out on his son. You understand this? The reason that we can sit here and in some way, and I'm not mocking what you said, but in some way we say it so cheaply that God loves me. And the reason that we can even utter that phrase is because the wrath of God was poured out on the one that he loved and absorbed completely on my behalf, and then raised from the dead that he might give life. And now that the Father might turn to me and say, all that was in the way of my ferocious love for you has been removed. That sin which made you an enemy has been removed in my son. And now the expression can truly be meant that God loves me. What greater act of love is there that one man might die for another? There is no greater evidence of the love of God for us than his giving 
of his son. And because his son has been spent on the cross, we get to stand here and go, no matter what I say, think, and do, no matter how I behave, God loves me and nothing can take me from that love. And because God loves me, I get to know the fullness of my father's heart. I get to know the fullness of my father's heart. This is cool. My dad is actually here today, and I I can tell you, I, I learned a lot about my father God because of my dad as well. I was raised in a godly home. I was raised where grace ruled the roost. I learned about grace through my upbringing. I learned about the goodness of God through my upbringing. The goodness of God was no strange thing to me. I'd seen it before in my father. And even, I knew this, and I behaved badly. Let me just... But I knew this, that in my worst behavior, I had no less of my father. In my greatest failure, I had no less of my father. That he truly withheld nothing good from me. Did he bring discipline? Oh, yes. (laughs) Did he bring some answers to some questions that in my heart I would have said, no, no, I don't want you to answer it with that way. I'd rather you do something different. I'd rather you just give me that car. Don't tell me to work. (laughs) Right? But I I had the fullness of my father's heart. And that's that's how we get to stand now because of the cross of Jesus. That's how we get to stand before our father. There There is no thing which will change his love for us. He loves us as his son's and his daughters, and because of that, we get to know the fullness of his heart. You don't have to ask as if it's some privileged thing. You have been given access. By the cross, you have been given access. In, uh, so, okay, so we'll move on. You guys good? So basically, the, the, the summing up of all of this uh, is that if, if we are going to, if we're going to live our lives, it, and look, this is, this is two ways, okay? So this is your, your personal life, your, uh, your private personal life b- before God. This, this greatly affects that area of your life and your, uh, your corporate life, your life amongst your brothers and sisters in Christ, your life uh, in dark places, your, uh, your, your life in the public, both public and private, these Uh, these truths drastically shape both of those things. But if we're going to live in both of those areas of our lives, if we're going to live in that paradox that Paul tells us, because Paul says it is fundamental that you shift your way of thinking. I didn't come to you with the wisdom of man. I came to you with the wisdom of God, which is not according to the powers of man. And if you're going to walk, listen to me, clue in. This is the the statement. If you're going to live according to the kingdom, a paradox shift must occur in your life. If we're going to walk and live according to the kingdom, a paradox shift must occur in our life to where the, way, the reason we do what we do is not according to the wisdom of men, but according to the wisdom of God, which is given to us in His Spirit, abides in us, and is known by us, right? We have to minister to the people next to us, not according to the way that the world sees them, but according to what we've been shown by the Father. You understand this? I, I taught this a few weeks ago. Had Cornelius uh, 
ministered to Paul based on what the world said about him. Paul was a terrorist. Cornelius would have never gone to his house and laid hands on him that he might receive sight and tell him God has chosen you and appointed you to go to the Gentiles. He would have never gone if his eyes saw as man saw. But Cornelius tapped into a different reality. He walked according to the kingdom. The paradox shift had occurred where Cornelius understood that God can take even the terrorist and bring glory, right? And so Cornelius said, I will go to his house and I'll put hands on this man who has killed so many of my brothers and my sisters and I will speak to him about the truth that God has said for his life. And the paradox shift occurred. Cornelius ministered to Paul based on the kingdom. You've got to begin to do two things. You've got to begin to switch the paradox in your life to where you see yourself according to the kingdom, right? You have to first do that. You have to. If you don't see yourself according to the way that God sees you, you will never effectively minister to the people around you. But you first have to see yourself according to the heart of God. And then the paradox takes place in your public life. And then you begin to see the truth about people around you. We've got to have a fundamental shift in the way that we live. Uh, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, a pastor friend of mine, we're talking about this uh, last week, and uh, it, it's just it's such a powerful truth about, uh, about what has ha- really happened to us. It says that you've been delivered from a domain of darkness. You've been delivered from it and placed into the kingdom of the beloved Son in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, right? That's what, the, that's what the passage says. You've been rescued from a domain of darkness and placed into the kingdom of, of his beloved son. And I, uh, I think it was about a year ago, I, I said, if I stand uh, on this stage, and this stage is the domain of darkness, there are rules that apply here, right? If you go to, if you go to France, there's rules that apply in France that don't apply here. You understand that? There's laws and rules and ways that government works that does not work here. And so as long as I am planted here, I am subject to these rules, right? And this is where I was in sin. In sin, I could not know the deep things of God. In sin, I could not solve my deepest hurt. In sin, uh, I had to live according to the principles of the world. I was a constant reaction. I only did what I thought was best and felt was best. I looked out for number one, right? Those are the rules of the domain of darkness. But we've been rescued from that domain and in the, placed in the kingdom of his beloved son. So we've got to understand that a, there, there's something has shifted in our, um, what, what do you call it? Well, you live somewhere. Um, residence. Thank you. Something has shifted in our residence. If you go to France and then you walk into the U.S. Embassy, what happens? New rules apply. You understand? You can, be in the, you can be in the middle of this domain of darkness, but as soon as you step foot into the U.S. Embassy, what, what rules apply? Come on, what rules apply? Whose rules apply? The United States, right? Why? Because you've made a shift, right? You've gone from a domain into a kingdom. This is what God is saying to us, that you used to live according to the earth. But I've transferred you to the kingdom of a beloved son. You, don't no, you no longer live according to the principles of this earth. That's why we have eternal life. Has that blown anybody's mind lately? Guess what? According to the principles of the earth, you die and die eternally. The kingdom doesn't say that. The kingdom says you live and live eternally. Right? Had David been analyzed by the Rules and principles of the earth, he'd have never been king, but God doesn't do it that way. 
David was king because David's heart was right before God and God chose him before the foundations of the earth to be king in that period uh, of, of history. So we've got to understand that when we move from a domain of darkness into the kingdom of beloved son, a new paradox applies. And if you don't see yourself in that light, you're going to have a very difficult time ministering to others in that light. You understand? You with me? In the kingdom, in the, in the kingdom, God has given you all things freely. In the kingdom, you're a son and a daughter. In the kingdom, in the kingdom, the kingdom of the beloved son, sickness is not binding. In the kingdom of the beloved son, death is not binding. In the kingdom of the beloved son, depression does not reign. In the kingdom of the beloved son, there's healing. In the kingdom of the beloved son, I am known not by what I do, but why I was created. Right? You understand this. There's a shift that must occur. And most of the time, when we look at ourselves and analyze ourselves, we analyze ourselves based on the rules and principles, the wisdom of men. And we come up with a, with a um, I'm losing words, our thoughts of ourselves. No. Self, uh, help me. Self-image, that's good, we'll just go with that. We come up with a self-image of ourselves that has a lot to do with what we've done and where we've been, right? If we transfer that to the kingdom, that's not the story that God wrote. It's not why you were created. That's not why he wired you the way he did. It's completely, completely different. So we've got to, we've got to move into a new uh, perspective. I'm going to finish reading this passage as soon as I get to it, and we'll be done. He says, uh, moving on, he says, uh, these things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So Paul says, once that shift has occurred internally, that shift must occur externally in your ministry. You must preach the same way that Paul said, according to the wisdom of God. And he says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Please hear this. Please, 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 please hear this. That the way that this works is that God has given you His Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit knows the deep things of God. And His job is revealing those things to us, crafting us and making us into the image of Christ by revealing the truth of God in our life, right? Do you see this? So the deep things of God are revealed to us in the Spirit, by the Spirit. Jesus said, an hour is coming and now is that true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. This is the way in which we were wired to know God. You understand? Nod if you get it. Say yes if you get it. All right. And he says, listen to what he says. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. What is he talking about? This is the natural man. All right. The natural man functions only according to his flesh. The combination of your body and your soul, your physical makeup, and then your emotional, mental makeup, that's your flesh according to the scriptures. Okay? This is the natural man. He says the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. God ever said anything to you that you rationalized and went, that doesn't make any sense. You want to know why? Because God doesn't function on your rational terms. 
He functions according to the kingdom. The minute that we take the things of the Father and we rationalize them, we've lost. Does that mean that your mind, will, and emotions are bad things? No. They're not bad things. They're just terrible leaders. They're terrible, terrible leaders. You were given these things to glorify God. I taught this last week. You remember what I said? Mary said, my soul does magnify the Lord. What did that mean? I receive the word of God in the spirit. I receive what God has said, his truth. It doesn't make sense that I would, be, uh, that I would have a son without being with a man, right? I'm a, I'm a virgin. There's no way that this occurs. That doesn't make sense. Rationally, it doesn't make sense. But she says, my soul does magnify the Lord. What is she saying? My flesh is submitted to the spirit. Paul will say it here in a little bit. In the very end of this chapter, he says, but we have the mind of Christ. How is that possible? Well, our mind functions in submission to the Spirit. Your mind, will, and emotions, that those are not bad things. They were given to you to glorify God. But you will not rationalize the things of God and then lead by your flesh and it, and it ever work out. You're not going to go, God, okay, you're going to have to make that make sense. You're going to have to make some things make sense to me before I step. Why is that never going to make sense? Because these things are not eternal. You understand that? They're not omnipresent and they're not omniscient. What does that mean? They're not everywhere and they don't see everything. But who does? God. Why are we dependent on the Spirit of God? Because He sees everything. So God tells you, go, you know, I, the story I tell a lot of times, I was in a group of people one time and I'll be done. I was in a group of people one time and we were praying. And God, in, in, the, in my spirit, uh, the Spirit just spoke softly to my heart and just said, it was a man in the back of the room, he just said, go put your hand on him while we're praying. Okay, well that doesn't make any sense. God, are you sure you don't want me to, like, I'm pastoral. I can give him like a great prayer, you know. I can tell him some encouraging things, right? This is my, what, what's happening? I'm rationalizing, right? I said, no, okay. God, you just said, go put your hand on him. So I went and I, and I just, while we prayed, it was simple. It was a closing prayer of an event. I put my hand on this man and he just began to cry. And then he found me afterwards and, uh, and he told me, he said, I was praying in that very moment. He said, I was praying. Uh, I'm in a desperate point in my life and I was praying, God, please touch me. You see this? See, my rational mind did not understand, right? But, wh but, but why, wh why would I not have gone? Because it didn't make sense. But you understand, I'm not capable of knowing what this man is praying to the Father. I'm not capable of knowing the wounds of his heart. I'm not capable of knowing what's happened to him earlier that day or earlier that week. I'm not capable of knowing in the moment what he's even dealing with. But I am able right here to submit to the Spirit and then be obedient, right? So was my hand a good thing? Yeah, it was a bad leader. It wouldn't have been a good leader. Was my mind a good thing? Absolutely. It would have been a terrible leader. But in that moment, God's used the touch, the physical touch of my hand to speak volumes to this young man about the depth of the love of the Father to him. And it was only because I was obedient. And that's not to glorify me, but that's to say this. A shift has to occur. And we have to begin to operate According to the Spirit, the Spirit knows the deep things of God. They've been revealed to you, given to you, live in you. You're not a beggar in the kingdom. You're a son and a daughter. God wants to show you, give you all good things. But we must make the paradox shift in our life. We must go, I will not live according to the natural. Because if I do, I'll never understand the things of God. God, give us this shift. 
God, bring this shift in our lives that we might uh, get up in the morning and know that if I live today according to the flesh, there I will be powerless. But if I submit this day to your spirit, if I submit this day to the things that you want to do, then transformation can occur, power can occur, authority can come. The kingdom can come in, the, in, in every area of my, of my life if I just walk according to the kingdom. And the good news is, by the blood of your son, I am a son in that kingdom. I'm not an orphan. I'm not a beggar. I'm a son in that kingdom. You look at me and you call me loved. You look at me and say, Kendall, all things are available to you because I love you. God, I thank you for that and I pray that this shift will occur in our lives. Kingdom come in Jesus' name, amen.